All right, so uh, uh, just a little bit of uh, reminder. Uh, for the last couple weeks, we've been talking about this idea that sometimes things bother us, uh, really in any area of life, but we're talking in particular about in our, in our church experience. Sometimes things bother us, and the reason that they bother us, if we had the insight into it, we would, we would recognize that there are other people out there around us in our lives who are violating rules that we carry from our own experiences, right? Those rules may or may not be universally recognized. So, some, of those, uh, some of those rules uh, are frequently shared with people around us in church, but sometimes they are rules that come very much from our own particular personal experience. And we get irritated, we get annoyed, we get bothered when other people violate our rules even if they didn't necessarily share the same experiences that we have had. So we've talked about that a little bit. Uh, George did a great job last week walking us, taking us back to Luke 15 for the, for the second time uh, and, and, and thinking in particular from the perspective of the older son, the older brother. You remember we, we talked about the content that the brother was upset about, but underlying that was this frustration that apparently his little brother doesn't have to follow the rules, at least not as he, the older brother, understands those rules. And so it's, it's a great point of frustration for him. We also mentioned last week that um, there may be things that, uh, that there are sometimes people do things that bother us that uh, we might say are objectively wrong, immoral, right? We're not saying that's not true. We're not discounting that. What we're focusing on here is those other times when what's really happening is our subjective rules are being um, violated. And when that occurs, something that I mentioned and we're going to talk more about today that can really help us respond more graciously to people is to purposefully engage in the act of reframing. Now, uh, I know reframing has maybe diff somewhat different meanings in different contexts. Some of you work in professional contexts where you talk about how we frame things. Um, the way I think about it in a mental health capacity is um, all around me every day are actions, words, behaviors that I observe, that I notice, and as a human being I can't help but put a certain frame around those actions, a frame that's influenced probably to a great degree by my own experiences. Right? And another of you might observe that same action and put a different frame around that. And reframing simply suggests that I have the capacity to consider more than one way to look at, think about, understand what someone else is doing, how someone else is behaving, what someone else may be saying. 
We understand the concept with a, with a picture. You know, imagine that there was a picture that was in a frame, and that frame's really not your style. You know, like, like maybe that, that picture has been put by someone in a scrolly, gold leaf, ornate frame. And some of us in this room, we, we like that, that's, that's our style, you know? But others of us in this room, we, we would prefer, you know, sleek, clean lines, you know, maybe just a nice, plain black frame or something like that. And if we took the picture out of a frame that we don't care for, right, we don't change the picture at all, we just put it in a different frame, we may respond differently even though we're still looking at the same picture. That's the idea here. And, and um, to kind of bring it home, uh, for those of you who are married, uh, I think most of us could understand how this works from time to time in the context of marriage. Right? Re reframing in the context of marriage, um, one of the really important voices in my field is the voice of John Gottman. Uh, John Gottman in, is about as close as we come to sort of knowing things uh, to be true and really robustly empirically supported when it comes to couple relationships, couple communication. And one of the things that if you only know one thing about John Gottman, you probably know the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. It's one of the more well-known bits of content from Gottman's work. Gottman says, there are four horsemen of the apocalypse that show up in relationships that sort of indicate that things are not going well. Defensiveness, stonewalling, criticism, and contempt. So two of those four horsemen are criticism and contempt. And again, this is not John Gottman's opinion. In fact, he would tell you he's not a relationship guru. He's an expert on how to do research on relationships. So his research indicates that these four things are particularly damaging to a relationship. He also tells us that in particular when it comes to criticism and contempt, underneath that, when we're feeling particularly critical or contemptuous, often underneath that, is a tendency to assume I'm upset therefore surely somebody has done something wrong. And that's relevant in marriage because the closest somebody is typically the person to marriage. But there's, there's generally not an assumption that people carry I'm upset maybe it's to do with me and my response to things. I'm upset, surely, somebody, somewhere, has done something wrong. It's the only possible explanation for me being upset, right? And so that, uh, that often is what underlies our tendency to be critical or contemptuous. But we also know from his word that frequently in marriage, that's actually not true that we are having conflict around things where nobody did anything 
objectively wrong. In fact, Gottman uh, has demonstrated that a, a overwhelming majority of couples experience what he calls perpetual problems. They were, uh, this was a struggle when you were dating, if you were honest enough to allow it to surface, right? They were a struggle two years into marriage, and you're still having the same basic conflicts 20 years into marriage. They're perpetual. And the reason they're perpetual is nobody's doing anything wrong. The reason you've got these particular problems is you're two different people in relationship with one another. Right? They tend to revolve around either we've got different personalities or we've got different needs. So if an extrovert marries an introvert, that's never not going to be the case. How's that for a double negative? You were probably attracted to some of that difference in the first place, right? But getting back to the idea of framing, so extroverts in the room, you say something, your introvert partner doesn't respond, Say it louder. <laughs> they don't respond, okay? You, you begin to make assumptions about why they're not responding to you, right? You, you, and those, you know, those assumptions might be, they're not listening to me. They don't care what I have to say. Um, they think what I've said is stupid and they don't want to say anything back. Maybe. Or maybe, you know, you married an introvert. Those of you who are in relationships with extroverts, they say a thing, then they say the same thing, then they say the same thing, then they say the same thing. With only the slightest variation, right? What do you, what frame do I put around that, right? They don't trust me to do this. They're they're nagging. They're uh, you know they're trying to control. Maybe or maybe the more accurate frame is I married an extrovert. Right? It's th this is all I'm saying when I'm talking about reframing is considering alternatives. We've talked a lot already in class about contextualizing people. Both our experience and the experience of people who are different than us. We've talked a lot in class about the process that might underlie content that we disagree about. Right? Giving consideration to these kinds of things, considering alternatives, might help us to look at the same behavior and think that's a way to see it. Right? But maybe this is a more helpful way to see it that helps me respond with more grace. Right? Um, so that's an example from marriage, just, just because I think that's something that a lot of us can probably relate to. There are also examples from church. Plenty. I, I'm actually just going to share a, a one or two what I would consider very benign for the most part, insignificant examples. 
and then Georgia's going to do Galatians, right? <laughs> where, where the stakes get a lot higher. That's, that's, why, that's, that's why I collaborated on that, that's right? Very strategic. Um, I was in a conversation once. You, uh, if Otter Creek is your first ever church experience, you don't recognize what these are. <laughs> so, some of us grew up in churches that had these little thrones up on the stage. Right? If, if you're having trouble remembering these, these would be in between the placards on either side that had the songbook numbers and the contribution and the stats. Right? On the other side. Okay. So, uh, for some of us, right, some, some of us like, what in the world, you know, is he talking about? Others of us grew up with this. Okay. So, I was around a conversation once at a church where um, they, they had made some efforts to um, change the aesthetics, make things seem a little more contemporary. I think they were going for a more approachable sort of leveling of, of sort of the playing field between those at the front and the, and the rest of us. And one of the things they did is they removed the, the thrones. <laughs> yeah. um, they had thrones at my grandparents' church. We just had pews, extra pews up at the church where I grew up in. But they removed the thrones. <coughs> and a, and a, a dear sister, yeah, I've seen more ornate ones, yeah. A dear sister that was very upset. One of, one of the, the seniors, sen, uh, not seniors in high school, sen, one of the senior citizens there. And I, I observed this conversation about her being upset about that. And the tone of the conversation to me seemed to be sort of mocking. Can you believe she would be upset about something like this? Um, and, and I would imagine the frame, right? Uh, if that if that's getting put around her in that moment is maybe, um, you know, she's bitter, she's controlling, you know. But I got to tell you, this was not my church. I, would, I was part of a conversation about this happening, so I didn't know her, no context for her. But I wonder. Given her age, given the amount of time she had been there, given that she was single, I wonder, I wonder if this is a widow, right? And, and I wonder if her husband for 10, 20, 30, 40 years sat up there waiting to lead the closing prayer, or sat up there waiting to give the announcements, or whatever the, the case may be, right? Same behavior, same concern, same upset, just a different frame. Now that one's pretty easy for us because we've got a little distance to it, and none of us regular—unless uh, you're visiting today—none of us regularly attend the church that still has the the thrones on stage. Uh, <clears throat> uh, let's let's bring it a little closer to home. <laughs> Those lights, right? Those lights. Um, last, I thought about this because last Sunday, right? Last Sunday, uh, 
Josh got up and made an apology, and it was a very mature thing to do. I was very impressed. He made this apology that I have no con I have no idea what he's apologizing for. I haven't been in a single conversation with him or, or any leadership about this, but th there was some feedback about the lights and I mean, I would imagine the smoke machine, although that wasn't said, right? Um, <laughs> right. I don't know what the feedback was, right? I don't know. I don't know the story. I have zero knowledge of the situation, except that I feel confident that there's more than one way to see it, right? And even if... I don't like the outcome or the finished product, there's a good chance that somebody in the decision-making process had a goal, a purpose, a rationale that was well-intentioned, even if it's not necessarily my taste, right? Considering alternatives, right? That's what we're talking about. Now, um, Again, these are examples that are relatively minor, benign for the most part, compared to what we've seen Paul dealing with in Galatians. With, you know, the Judaizers are upset because not everybody is following the rules that for them are the rules that matter. So George is going to take us back to Galatians, and I'm um, looking forward to hearing what you have to say about it. I'm not sure how benign your examples are. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was on the NCC and involved a little bit in the light discussion. And, uh, um, and I, I was working in the nursery last week, so I didn't hear Josh's apology. Oh. Well, he, he pinned it all on the MCC. <laughs> there were some failures. No, he did not. He did not say a thing about the MCC. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah but so we're adding uh, several things to the list of benign things. They may not be really benign. <laughs> right. But uh, Galatians 3.28 in particular, in the book, whenever you talk about Galatians, that is one of the key theme verses that comes out as one of maybe one of the most important verses in the book of Galatians. So, uh, and, and when David talked to me about um, reframing, I, I thought, well, Paul was able to move from, you know, very uh, Jewish, Jews only, then his, his conversion or his uh, change to recognize that Jesus is Jesus Messiah, then everybody's invited, and the Jew-Gentile distinction starts breaking down for him. So he was able to reframe uh, his own way of thinking about it based on a theological principle, theological truth. Mm. So he says, so in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. Uh, for all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. I, I love that passage because Paul talks about faith and baptism in the same breath. So for for my Church of Christ, Church of Origin, I'm like, yes, that's how I like that. That's right. Uh, yeah. Faith and baptism <laughs> to get, go together, you know, in Paul's mind. Uh, so that, I like that part. Um, 
there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave or free, male or female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you're Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So I want to focus on a, a broader context of what Paul says here, and that is this is about inheritance. Because one of the questions that comes to my mind is, so he's talking all through Galatians about Jew and Gentile, and that's pretty clear that we cannot make distinctions about uh, the church based on your ethnicity of being Jew or Gentile. That's his big issue because some are saying that the Gentiles have to be circumcised, have to keep the law, and he's saying, no, nope, uh, since Christ came, there's no longer that distinction. But then he adds to that slave or free, male and female, and one of the ideas about why that particular, those, that triad is there is because of inheritance type things. Uh, so with the Abrahamic <coughs> promise, there's, you know, now that that's fulfilled, Gentiles are, are co-inheritors with other children, physical children of Abraham. And when you talk about inheritance in the ancient world, then that would bring up slave and free, and also male and female. So this was well before Downton Abbey, but even by the time of Downton Abbey, <laughs> um, you know, only theme, we need a we need a male. We gotta have a male to inherit Downton Abbey. That's a place, right? Yeah, uh, we gotta inherit Downton. It must be a male. Uh, well, that fortunately, I I would say has changed. Uh, but let's go to chapter four because this is right after this is uh, Paul kind of elaborates on what he's saying. Uh, what I'm saying is that as long as an heir is under age, he's no different from a slave, although he owns a whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also when we were under age, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world, and your translations will vary on how to translate that phrase. But that means that something like, and it's amazing that Paul says this about when when we were under the law as Jews, in some ways, you know, that was leading us to a different era where, era where we are no longer under the law. Uh, and when we were under the law, we were in some ways enslaved to these basic principles of the world. Um, it's not exactly clear exactly what he means there, but something like, uh, I, we have to do the right things to get to get things from God or something like that. Although a lot of, you know, I'm thinking through this as I, as I speak, that's not how Jewish people really see the law. But there's some basic thing where he's saying, that law served a purpose for a time, but that time is over and now there are different rules. Um, but when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out by the Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And your translation here might say God's son because the Greek word is, is the word son. This is the NIV, which is a, a more conservative, I mean, it's translated by theologically conservative translator, translation committee, but they feel comfortable enough about what Paul is saying here that uh, he's meaning it to apply not just to males, but to males and females. We are now co-inheritors. We get the inheritance. Uh, our gender is not 
the basis for whether we can be part of the inheritance or not. Uh, so they change it to God's child. Since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. So it's a little uh, counterintuitive maybe or, or problematic that Paul uses male-specific <coughs> language, but it's because of the concept of inheritance. So he's using the analogy of sons who inherit. Um, now we are all part of that sonship. Uh, so the reason they change it to child, I'm sure, is that's not the way we would say it today because we're more sensitive to gender-specific language and we want to be more inclusive in our language, and so they change it to child. So um, I want to just put on the table that this idea of inheritance is what is behind Galatians 3.28. So let's go back to 3.28. Uh, neither Jew or Gentile, slave or free, uh, nor is there male and female. You are all one in Christ. But the question that comes up in how we play this out in our churches and in marriage as well, maybe I'll stick to the marriage one because we have a marriage counselor in the room. So does this verse apply only to inheriting the Abrahamic promise of salvation? Or does it apply to social and church relations as well? So this is the million dollar question. And uh, I'm not going to give you an answer. Uh, I'm going to do the teacher thing of, let's throw it open to the class. <laughs> but I am interested in hearing uh, the thoughts in the room on this. Um, let's go to the next. I'll just I'll set the table. Okay. And then we'll, so some people that I've read says this, this only applies to salvation. So uh, Jew, Gentile, male, female, uh, slave, free, we're all one in Christ. It's, it's about being saved. So uh, it's, it's not so much about different roles in the church or different roles in marriage. Um, and... Uh, they say this because of what Paul says about different roles of men and women elsewhere in his letters. So, uh, Paul's the one who wrote in Galatians 3.28, either male or female, but he's also the guy who said, you know, I do not permit a woman to teach and all these other things, and that uh, husband is the head of the household and the wife is the husband. So how do we manage uh, this seeming difference? Um, so the way some people manage it is to say, well, in Galatians 3.28, it's just talking about salvation. Um, so the, the, the question is, does inheriting salvation also have social and church um, consequences as well? Yeah? Well, I reflect on when Paul prophetic Peter uh, in uh, was, um, showed some difference uh, when he was associated with Jews and then yeah. so that shows his mindset that uh, he, he sees us all as, as one yeah. and so I think it has a dichotomy meaning to me salvation as well as yeah. relationship to one another yeah. I don't I don't see 
a specific ethnic group being unequal in class. Yeah. Just because of their ethnicity. And that's or, what's or, under or their gender. Yeah, and that's what's under this people who say it, well your salvation does influence uh, role consequences as well. Because Peter I mean the table fellowship, so the fact that we are one in Christ, justified by our faith in Christ, isn't just about going to heaven when you die, it's also about who you eat with in, mm -hmm. in the first century church. And can Jew and Gentile eat at the same table? Peter was withdrawing because he was getting pressure from Jews from Jerusalem. And Paul's like, no, you cannot, you cannot do that. That you're you're changing the gospel because of your social. Yeah. Uh, to answer your question about Paul writing different things, uh, if you read carefully, all of his different letters were tailored to questions that could each be in that specific church. Yeah. I don't think we can say because he said this to that one and that to the other one. He's answering problems and questions. Yeah, and that's how people that that are more on this side deal with the fact that Paul says there's differences in other places. Is those are specific problems going on in specific churches? Yeah. I think it goes back to when we first talked at one of the first classes about Paul even saying, when I'm with this group, I'm going to do this. When I'm with that group, I'm going to do that. I'm going to talk different ways to to attract everyone to, to Christ. So I think like what the last person just said, I think it's whoever he's speaking to at that time and that um, thing. Because so, I can't understand. So, so if the only the salvation, is that saying that before that time, women could not have salvation? Yeah, yeah. That's what does that mean? Because yeah. <laughs> uh, to me, that doesn't make sense. <laughs> <laughs> the salvation part doesn't make sense to me. Right. I didn't know that women couldn't be saved before that. Right. <laughs> or is that what they thought? No, that's not what they thought. So how could it, I don't understand that, but anyway. See, I'm a nine on the Enneagram. I, have I mentioned that before? You're right. <laughs> a nine? I, I feel it's very important to have both sides represented as well. Yeah. I'm a six, so I'm worried about it. <laughs> I'm a six, so I'm really worried about this. I'm sure there's a good response. But, I mean, that's that was my first question because I've never thought about that women were not could not inherit salvation, that that was ever a case, so I guess that's confusing. Can I want, quickly, can I say back what I think I'm hearing if we use the idea of rules? Um, your question is, Paul appears to be expanding or challenging an existing rule with a new one, and your question is, but wasn't that already the rule, right? What, weren't women... Right. Or maybe yeah. they weren't. Maybe it was accepted that they knew. I don't, but I don't believe that's the case. So, so know, if, if he's if he's advancing that. a new understanding of a rule, yeah. it would indicate something that more before, than just yeah. that. Yeah. Maybe it's the analogy of inheritance. So they're saying women weren't inherited. Couldn't they, have inheritance. Yeah, they used to not be able to inherit, but now. But that, but, but yeah, the, the spiritual Abrahamic inheritance they always I see it the other way. I see I see that the Galatians were saying that was true, and Paul is correcting them back to, to his original intent or Christ's original intent and saying, Hey, what y'all are doing, it's 
go back to the way it should be. Yeah. Yeah. That, and that's the way I read it. Yeah. 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 So it's not new, it's something that's just correcting things. Michael, what were you going to say on this? Uh, yeah, I don't think it was ever about salvation. Like, even, even the Gentiles, it, it wasn't about whether or not they were saved. You see Gentiles in the Old Testament who are saved and don't become part of the Jewish people. The, the thing that I think is at stake here is an inheritance which has to do with the Abrahamic role of blessing the world on behalf of God, which I think Paul sees as a continuation of the Genesis 1 role of humanity uh, cultivating the world. So um, the idea that I think Paul's struggling with uh, uh, in, in conflict with is the idea that um, because that uh, that calling had been given to Abraham, that you um, that it was limited in that way to specific work, uh, roles and approaches within the, the people of Abraham. And Paul's saying it's not right. That not only are our Gentiles now included in the, the mission and calling of Abraham, but also um, but also women and so forth. And I don't think that contradicts the idea that people are going to work this out in some different ways, but he is saying don't let any of these things interfere or become barriers to this calling that we are all share. Mm. Yeah. And I think that's that's kind of what struck me as I've processed my own understanding of what Paul says in Galatians 3.28 and my own church experience. Uh, I was teaching at a little church when I was in grad school at Lipscomb, so I was, it was a long time ago, um, 1980s, late 80s, um, Baird's Mill, Church of Christ, uh, in between Mount Juliet, Lebanon, about 20, 25 people in the church. I mean, yeah. I was just starting out, and, you know, I was, they, they tolerated me. Uh, <laughs> we were doing First Corinthians. I taught a Sunday morning class in the sermon. So we, we got to that First Corinthians 14 about women and submitting. And I, I've done some work on that. Uh, the the policy, or not? I guess the unwritten policy of this church was women could talk during the Sunday school time. Uh, <laughs> not so much during the the worship time, but. Um, Covert uh, rule. That wasn't written down anywhere, written down. but everyone followed it. Right. So I kind of read the verse, and I had prepared some things to say, and I threw it to the class, and this oral, very, very much older woman in the congregation who I sensed had a voice that people listened to and would do this. She just said, a woman's place is in the home. A woman's place is in the home. And I brought a friend with me, a female friend, and she's like, her jaw dropped to the ground. <laughs> So even within that context, there was a difference of how society had changed or how do we apply this to a church when society has changed. Yeah. And I wonder, too, about Paul's own, you know, he said some things in First Corinthians about wearing head coverings, and, and most of us are content not to try to apply that today, but... There was something about the culture that he lived in that was important that women wear head coverings in certain situations. Um, and let's go to this next verse because uh, I was reading 
someone who took this only salvation view, and he mentioned this uh, particular passage in 1 Peter 3. So we're not at Paul, this book Peter now. Uh, but wives, submit yourselves to your husbands. Um, your beauty should not come from outward adornment. Um, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. Um, you are her daughters if you do what is right. You're not your husbands in the same way. Be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. So he was pointing out that, yeah, we're all, we all are heirs, but there can still be difference in, in roles. And it just strikes me that how we manage the roles part is very much culturally affected by our culture. So there can be a theological truth mm -hmm. that frames, mm. and then we bring our cultural frame as well. Yeah. I guess I'm wondering how we manage that. And Dave, I want to ask you, yeah. like, if you're with a couple managing how they live out a passage like this, sure. um, what kind of advice do you give? Well, as a good therapist, I would say it's 10.45 in time. <laughs> I can. I can. I, I, uh, I'll answer. I'll, I'll answer. I'll answer your question. Uh, what I would do, what what my tr what my training, right, suggests that I do, is explore with them the where those beliefs and where those rules are coming from. And an important part of, of discernment there for me would be: Do we? Do we believe this? Or does one of us believe this and the other is maybe, you know, conflict avoided or one of us believes this and the other is, uh, for whatever reason, not uh, engaging, you know, fully. Uh, those are the kinds of conversations that I would try to have about, just like you're talking about integrating theological frame, right, with a cultural frame. I would be doing a similar process of integrating two different frames, right? Partner one, partner two, right? And uh, are there, what are those differences? If so, what are they? Where are they coming from? What's negotiable? What's non-negotiable? All of this would be part of the discussion uh, as they sort of work to uh, decide how they want to frame it, right? Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, good stuff. And I, I when, the, the, the moments like this are the reason that I am so grateful for your collaboration in this, because um, I'm learning so much as a student when you're talking about uh, these, these theological applications, and I appreciate your willingness to sort of to go, uh, go there with us. Um, and will you say, kind of as a final word, and, and then we'll go, will you say again sort of how Paul reframed the, the whole question of the law? It's something you said uh, early on when, when well, you were starting. That's the power of Galatians 3.28. Yeah, okay. Is that one, 
being one through your faith in Jesus is the yeah. ultimate, you know, as, as the old preachers used to say, the, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. So it brings us all to the same. There's no slave or free, yeah. Jew, Gentile, male, female, all those power, mm-hmm. perceived power things. That whole, that whole thing gets reframed because of Jesus, because of the cross, and yeah. because of his faithfulness. And our faith and his faithfulness then changes all these dynamics. And what we have to negotiate is how our own culture then is affected by that truth, that theological truth. Yes. And it's just, you know, that's where church becomes fun and difficult is that we all have different things that we bring to that conversation. And we have to keep that theological truth, you know, bedrock. But then also say, how do we live this out in our? I, I think that's a great last word, especially heading into Easter, and we'll see everyone back here in two weeks. So thank you very much.